Well, in case you missed it, especially you children, did you know that last Sunday, June 10th, was Children's Day? Have you ever even heard of such a thing? There is a National Children's Day. And when I was a kid, it was printed on most calendars. And in fact, the church I grew up here in town, if it was a special day, they printed it at the top of the bulletin. Father's Day or Mother's Day or Christmas or New Year's Day. And right there in our bulletin, it said Children's Day. And I wondered why we didn't get gifts like mom and dad do. And I discovered that it wasn't a good idea to ask mom and dad about that. But don't sweat it if you miss Children's Day, because in our country there are over 1,200 national days. Today is also National Go Fishing Day and National Splurge Day. Makes all kinds of sense. If dad goes fishing, mom goes to the mall. (laughs) There you go. Yesterday was Global Garbage Man Day. Global Day. And it was also National Eat Your Vegetables Day. I think those two are related as well. (laughs) Tomorrow is National Garfield the Cat Day. Tuesday is National Hike with a Geek Day. (laughs) And Tuesday is also National Milkshake Day. Yay, I finally hit one that hit a nerve there. There we go. And, of course, today is Father's Day, and we honor our fathers and our grandfathers as we are commanded to do in Scripture. We give God thanks for our parents, and given the opportunity, we express our love and appreciation to our parents because there will come a day that they will no longer be with us. With the passing of my mom, I've been given a lot of thought this past week to what both my mom and dad have given to me. No, they didn't give me gifts on Children's Day, but as a way of life, they sacrificially gave me gifts that were far more precious. And for several months now, I've been thinking and praying, Jan and I both, about what we as Grace Baptist Church should be giving to our children, to giving to these precious kids that God has has brought to us. And I mean this with all sincerity and solemnity, what we should be giving to these kids, imparting to these kids before it's too late. Before it's too late. Before we have the chance of losing them to the values of the world and in which they live. I don't have to tell you that they're growing up in a more hostile and godless world than which we grew up. I don't have to quote the statistics and talk about worldviews and cultural norms and what those things that are prevalent in our society. As grandparents and parents and teachers and those of you who work with kids, you see it every day. And when we take our responsibility with these kids seriously, as we should, there are times we have to admit it scares us to death. It scares us to death. Well, we're going to be looking at God's Word this morning at a place where we see exactly how and why our culture is the way it is today and what we are to give to our kids who have to live in this crummy world. shouldn't surprise us that the Bible often talks about parenthood in terms of warfare. Warfare, terms of arrows in the hands of a warrior, of battle and enemies and weapons that we and our kids face Every day, every day. And I'm going to talk about two different fathers today, two different fathers that we find in Scripture and the legacy that each one leaves, because both of these fathers are warriors. They're mighty warriors. 
In fact, one of the fathers is known as his skill, known for his skill as an archer. His name is Ephraim. Ephraim. And according to Psalm 78, verse 9, that we'll look at a little bit later, he and his sons are described as archers equipped with bows. And 1 Chronicles 12, 30 tells us that Ephraim and his sons are mighty men of valor. These are the men and the sons you would want at your side in battle. And the other father is simply known as a warrior. His name is Joshua. And we saw this kind of warrior described in Psalm 127, if you want to look at verses 4 and 5 again. Verse 4 of 127 Psalm, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, like arrows in the hand of someone like Joshua, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. That's Joshua. We have two mighty warriors, Ephraim and Joshua. Both of these men are men of valor. They're strong against their enemies. Yet one of these fathers instills courage, commitment, and faith in his sons and daughters, in those whom he leaves behind. And the other father does not. He leaves offspring. Offspring who do not know God or his work and who worship and serve the gods in the land in which they live. So the question this morning is, and this applies to dads and, and every, any and all adults who are in a position of influence with children, what are you giving to your kids while you still have time? And that's going to be, are you an Ephraim? Are you a Joshua? Now, in order to explain these, I'm going to have to change metaphors this morning. In order to explain these questions and imply them to us as parents and other influential adults in the lives of children, I'm going to switch metaphors. And uh, we're going to look at chairs. We're going to go from arrows and warriors and, and battles to the hunting or camping chairs in which today's warriors and children sit. Now, I've adapted this analogy from Bruce Wilkinson's comparison of the three chairs in his book, First Hand Faith. And Wilkinson asked the question, what can we do to ensure that our faith abides and flourishes in the next generation? What can we do? Put another way, what can we do to ensure that our kids will put their confidence in God and will be men and women of faith who will not turn their backs on God when the going gets tough. What do we want for our children? How do we give this to them? And, and Wilkinson says he got the idea of the three chairs when he was preaching at what was considered one of America's most outstanding churches. Wilkinson writes that he felt honored to be standing in the pulpit and recounting a bit of their history. But when he said, please open your Bibles and turn to such and such scripture, everyone just sat in their chairs. No one moved. No one opened a Bible. And that's when the analogy of the three chairs hit him. At lunch after the service, he discovered the congregation didn't bother to bring their Bibles to church because the pastor preached more out of Newsweek and Time than he did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The congregation did not believe the tenets of the gospel, and for the most part, they remained unconverted. They gathered more for the music and the social interaction. The entire church had moved from godliness 
to godlessness. How could that have happened? How could a vibrant church grow so distant to the Lord? So let's go back to the hunting chairs on which the, the warriors sit. In the first chair, we're going to call that the godly chair. The godly chair. It is those who sit and remain close to the Lord. Those who abide in Christ and he in them. And then the third chair is the godless chair. Those who sit in it have rejected God. They have moved away from God, from godliness to godlessness. Now, if the third chair looks more comfortable, and you go, I don't know if that looks very comfortable. We're talking about camping chairs here. But that's definitely a more comfortable chair than the, the first one you sit in, where you have to kind of sit it and, and uh, sit up straight. I, made the, I did this intentionally because people in the third chair, whoops, went back there, get the right button here. People in the third chair, they want to be as comfortable as possible. They want to make life as comfortable as possible. Their goal is comfort. And what is disconcerting is that people who sit in the third chair believe that the goal of parenting is to make their kids happy to make them successful, help them to know how to make their own lives comfortable. The goal is their kids' comfort and success. And they try to teach their kids to get whatever they can to be comfortable, to be successful, while the goal of the parents is the first, in the first chair, the parents understand the goal is to make children holy. They want to rear holy children. They want to rear godly children. They want children who, because they learn to obey their parents, they will one day obey, obey God. And there's another chair, the second chair. We're going to call this chair Ephraim. Ephraim, the second chair. The first chair, the godly chair, we'll call Joshua, because he'll be our example. And the third chair, the godless chair, we're going to call them the sons of Ephraim. In the scripture, we find these three chairs sitting right next to each other. It's in the last chapter of the book of Joshua, in the first two chapters of the book of Judges. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. Joshua. Right after Deuteronomy, there's Joshua, Judges. And I want you to go to Joshua chapter 24, beginning at verse 14. We begin with the chair called Joshua. There's no doubt about it. Joshua is a primary example of a person who sits in the first chair. He knows the Lord, and he lives his life to serve the Lord. Every time you find Joshua in the pages of Scripture, you find him seeking to please God in his faith and in his actions. Even when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, where was Joshua? Sitting at the base, getting as close to God as he was allowed to get, but sitting at the base of the mountain. And whenever Moses went into the tent of meeting where he met with God face to face and the glory of God descended, where was Joshua? Sitting right outside the tent. Joshua was a man who always wanted to be as close to God as he could be. And what we have in Joshua chapter 24 is Joshua's farewell speech to the people of Israel who have conquered and possessed the land of, of promise. And in verse 14 of the 24th chapter, of Joshua. This is what Joshua says. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
For if, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served, which are beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But what? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can you see it? See why Joshua's in the first chair there? He loves the Lord. He has a heart for God. He even commits his family to serving the Lord. This man is totally sold out to serving God. This is what it's like in the first chair. Now, the people of Joshua's generation were also committed to God. They had seen God work. They saw the fall and defeat of Jericho, the conquest of Ai, the division of the land between the tribes. They knew that God was with them during difficult times of war and taking the land. This generation had first-hand knowledge and experience of the God of heavens at work in their midst. They had first-hand faith. You see, that's the mark of the first chair. They, they know God firsthand. They love him, and they have actually seen God work on their behalf. They've seen God work in their lives. That's the mark of first chair people today. First chair people can pass on the good news of Jesus Christ because they have experienced his mighty power in their own lives. First chair people know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. They're being filled up to the fullness of God. Christ dwells in their hearts, and they are rooted and grounded in love, and they have witnessed firsthand the mighty works of God. When they give their testimony, first chair People, they don't go back to, well, when I was saved and I was baptized. They go back to yesterday or this morning. This is what God is doing in my life. Then we have Ephraim in the second chair. Look at Joshua chapter 24, the same chapter in Joshua, the 31st verse. This chair, the second chair, we've called Ephraim. And Ephraim consists of the generation of the elders of the people who outlived Joshua. In other words, this is the next generation after Joshua. So let's trace for a bit what happened to Joshua's descendants in the generation that outlived him. Verse 31 of this 24th chapter, Joshua says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now turn to the next book, right after Joshua, the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2, verse 7. This is where we see all these chairs sitting together. In the second chapter of Judges, we find a parallel passage, just what we read in Joshua. The seventh verse of Judges chapter 2. And it says pretty much the same thing that we saw in the book of Joshua. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So we have the next generation coming, and then we have the generation before them, Joshua's generation, who had seen God work, who could testify to the work of God. Those who sat in the first chair, you see, the child who was raised in the first chair family is most fortunate. He or she sees with their own eyes the commitment of their parents, the love they have for God. It's in their parents. 
and they see how God actually answered specific prayers of their parents. They see how God works in their parents' lives. It was the same in Joshua's day. The second generation received the innumerable benefits of their parents' firsthand faith. They had known all the deeds of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. And how did they know them? Let's see. You know, how did people sitting in the second chair, the Ephraim chair, know all the deeds of what God had done for Israel? It's because Joshua's generation, their parents who were there when they saw God work, had passed on the stories of God's deeds and marvelous works of the next generation, to the Ephraim generation. So let's turn over to the 78th Psalm for a moment. Psalm 78. 78th Psalm, page 703 in the Bibles in the rack. And we're going to look at the, the first eight verses for a moment, and then a couple verses after that. The first eight verses of Psalm 78. Here we have the testimony of the people in the first chair and what they did in obedience to God. These are the Joshuas who obeyed the Lord God by telling their children, by telling their children what? This is what the first chair family does. This is life in a first chair family, beginning at verse 1 of Psalm 78. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings. In other words, sayings that have a potential of being hidden, but I'm going to tell you about them of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers told to us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works, which he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers, what? That they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, and then I have in my Bible written right next to verse 7, this is the goal of parenting. <laughs> I wrote that. I don't know when I wrote that. The goal of parenting, that they should put their confidence in God. That is, our children should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments. Verse 8, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation who did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You see, the Ephraim generation, the generation in the chair that came after Joshua, they still believed in the Lord, but there was one significant difference. Their faith wasn't original. It was secondhand faith. They hadn't dealt personally with the Lord. Instead, they relied upon the faith of their parents and the stories of what God has done in their parents' generation, and that alone was enough to develop faith. God promised that would be enough to develop faith. As children, they witnessed the miracles of God's intervention on behalf of their parents. They found out about the miracles from their fathers and from their mothers or their grandparents. They heard about how God had parted the waters of the Red Sea. They brought water from a rock, provided manna in the wilderness, heard the miraculous story of the walls falling down at Jericho at the sound of the trumpets. The Ephraim generation believed the stories. It was enough to instill faith in God. 
but they were a generation removed from the issues personally, weren't they? Their parents had marched around the walls of Jericho. They'd only heard about it. They believed all the facts about God, but they had not experienced him personally. That's the second chair, that second-hand faith. The third chair, now as you think of that uh, more comfortable camping chair that was uh, clear over to the right-hand side, what we have called the sons of Ephraim. Now we're coming another generation down. The children of the parents in the second chair, and we also find them in Psalm 78. We finished at verse 8, we go to to verse 9. Get this, the sons of Ephraim, the third chair, were archers equipped with bows. But get this, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and the miracles he had shown them. Every once in a while I want to say, you know, this is one of the most depressing, tragic verses in all in Scripture. When it comes to parenting, this is tragic. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds. Wow, you got caught right up there. Good job. (laughs) And we go, how on earth can this happen? How can you go from godliness to godlessness in such a short time? From godly grandparents to godless grandchildren. Back to the book of Judges. We left off at Judges chapter 2 verse 7. So now we want to go to verse 10 in that same second chapter. Judges chapter 2, the 10th verse. says in 10th verse of Judges chapter 2, And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. All the Ephraim generation, the second chair generation, were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Do you see it? There are Profound differences between the second and the third generation. The third generation did not know the Lord. In other words, in New Testament terminology, they were not saved. They they weren't people of faith. They did not know God personally and were not saved. That's difficult to believe. And, And verse 10 here of Judges 2 says, they didn't even know the stories of the great miracles their grandparents had experienced. They didn't know that Jericho's walls had tumbled to the ground because the nation of Israel obeyed God and marched and blew trumpets so that God parted the Jordan and the sun had stood still. They didn't even know. Or if they did hear about him, they thought it was just a myth. You see, you got the Joshua generation telling the Ephraim generation, this is what God did. And I was there and God worked. And then you have the Ephraim generation telling his kids, this is what grandpa said. And the kids going, I don't believe it. Do the walls fall out or do they fall in? Have you heard critics of the Bible ask that? Which way did they fall? You know, did they fall out or in? They couldn't have fallen 
out or because that's not the way battles work. And so the third generation, forget that. <laughs> I, I don't believe it. But here it says they didn't even know. They rejected it outright. Why? Because there's only one reason I can think of based on what we read in, in Psalm 78. Tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his mighty works, which he had done. The only conclusion we come to is why the third generation didn't know was because the faith didn't get passed from the first generation clear down to the third. The second generation couldn't tell about God's great answers to prayer because they hadn't had any themselves. When first-hand faith gets passed on, it, that more becomes second-hand faith. And second-hand faith doesn't have any personal first-hand experiences. The second chair, Ephraim, goes through the motions, but he doesn't have any vibrant reality behind it. First-hand faith has experienced the reality of God. Second-hand faith is only heard about it by the time we get to the third generation. There's no faith left. Let's see which one we're on here. Yeah, Judges 2, 11 through 12. Judges chapter 2, verse 11 continues. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the God to anger. Then we have that sobering theme of the whole book of Judges, the theme of the book of Judges, chapter 17 of Judges, the sixth verse. Remember this? You can say it by heart. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. What does it say? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. There is no better description of the prevalent view of life in 21st century America than every man does what is right in his own eyes. If you don't believe that, you didn't watch the news yesterday. Just that simple. And no matter where you look in history, or where you look in life or in family life, the three-stage process holds true. The person in the first chair is saved. The second chair person is saved, or, or at least professes to be, the third chair person is not saved. The first pair person has seen the works of God. The second chair person has heard of the works of God. The third, pair, third chair person doesn't know about the works of God. So the person sitting in the third chair forsakes the Lord God of their fathers. The person in the third chair does evil in the sight of the Lord. The person in the third chair replaces God with other gods. I want to read a quote from Bruce Wilkinson's book on the three chairs. He gives an example here how this works. He says, Consider the early days of the founding of America. In the beginning, there were people who had experienced God's miraculous work, and they brought revival to our nation. Followers of Christ believed the hand of God was present in the founding of our nation. The founding documents of our nation are replete with references to our Creator. The first colleges in this country, Harvard, Princeton, William and Mary, were all founded to train men to preach the gospel. They, 
were started by men and women who sat in the first chair and who had experienced the providence of God. But the following generation didn't have the same vital relationship with God, and they carried on those values out of tradition rather than conviction. They continued what the other generation had done, the earlier generation had done. That's the way we've been doing it. Not from a resolute commitment to living life so that it fully pleases Jesus Christ. By the time the third generation arrived, any mention of God was a bit of an embarrassment. This third generation has remained in these institutions for the most part out of tradition. And Ivy League students today have told me that even carrying a Bible into a classroom can get you mocked and scorned all too often. Unquote. One of my heroes of the faith is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is considered the foremost American theologian. Uh, I downloaded an ebook one time that says, Jonathan Edwards' complete works. And if I'd known at the time it was going to take so long to download because it was 26,000 pages. <laughs> Takes up a lot of my Kindle space with 26,000 pages of, of Jonathan Edwards. But his preaching was mightily used of God in the Great Awakening in our country in the 18th century, the first Great Awakening. And he wrote on the absolute sovereignty of God, and he wrote beautiful stuff about the beauty of God's holiness out of his firsthand experience with the, the beauty of God. And he experienced the miraculous work of God's revival firsthand. Edwards is a remarkable example of the first chair a Joshua. Now, one of Jonathan Edwards' daughters married an Ephraim, a second chair, by the name of Aaron Burr Sr. Now you're being to see where I'm going with this. And their third chair son, the son of an Ephraim, was also named Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was one of the most brilliant men to ever graduate from Princeton. He was a vice president of the United States of America. And having been beaten for the presidency by Thomas Jefferson by one tie-breaking tie vote in Congress, after more than 40 votes in Congress to break the tie, Jefferson was chosen for the presidency. You know, it's a bit off the subject here, but so important. Your vote is so important in a democratic society. For lack of the required electoral college votes, only one vote in Congress after 40-some votes kept Aaron Burr from becoming the third president of the United States of America. On July 7, 1804, in the historic duel at Weehawken, New Jersey, Burr mortally wounded his professional rival and political enemy, Alexander Hamilton. You know why? Because Hamilton swung the vote to Jefferson. Hamilton didn't like Jefferson, but he even disliked Aaron Burr even more. And after he killed Alexander Hamilton, he went out to the West for a while and had political ambitions in the West, and then he was eventually tried for treason. And he came that far, a third chair person became that far, becoming the, th becoming the third president of the United States of America. How do you go from Jonathan Edwards' family to Aaron Burr's family? The principle of the three chairs. And so the question is this morning, so where do you sit? 
You're going, well, I'm, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> How comfortable is that chair? These, these are the most comfortable, movable chairs of any church I've ever been a part of. I love these chairs. They're comfortable. I've sat in chairs where my back starts to hurt here, and then when I shift, it hurts here. And, uh, you know, we like to have comfortable chairs. But really, the spiritual question is, where do you sit this morning? Do you sit in the first chair? Are you a Joshua? Are you experiencing the presence of God and allowing God to use you to serve others? Are you, are you being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ? Does Christ minister through you to others? Do you lovingly serve others? You see, the first chair is the chair of service. It's all about people. You know, Dr. Wilkinson uses the example of the first, second, and third chair. He looks at the chairs again and he says, okay, the, okay, the first chair... Joshua chair, there's King David. It, it was all about people. It was all about serving people. It was all about doing God's will in the first chair. Who's in the second chair? Who's the next generation after King David? Solomon. Solomon started out okay. But in the second chair, you see it's all about money. It's not about people. It's all about money. It's all about what I can obtain. It's all about, you know, what money. We make our decision. In the first chair, we make our decisions. Does this please God? Do I serve others? The second chair is, what is it going to cost me or what can I get for it? It's all about money. We make the most important decisions of our life based on financial concerns. Who's in the third chair? Who's in the godless chair in this instance? Rehoboam. It's all about me. It's all about the worship of me. What did Rehoboam and Jeroboam do? They established in, in Israel, they established uh, temples of Baal where people could come and worship so-called the God who brought them out of, out of Egypt. They worshiped the gods of this world. Do you love, do you live to serve others? Or are you in the second chair? Are you an Ephraim? You believe the truth. You, you appreciate what God is doing in the lives of other people, but you wonder, why don't I have the same spiritual passion and the same spiritual experiences that other people do? Do you sit in the third chair? Are you a son or a daughter of Ephraim? You really don't know what God is doing about anything. And so you do your own thing. You see, these questions related to which chair we sit in are important because we saw in Psalm 78, God's desire is that we have godly kids, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments. You see, the first chair person raises godly children. The second pair chair person raises offspring. Godly children are only developed by way of first-hand faith of their parents and others in their lives with intense purpose, prayer, and perseverance. There's a required and definite link between your godly character and your determined discipleship of your children so that they grow into godly adults. If you are a Joshua, the Lord is your helper. Your children will grow to be a Joshua or an Ephraim. 
with God's help. If you are in Ephraim, if you're in the Ephraim chair, the best that you can expect from your influence from your kids is that your kids will be the son or a daughter of an Ephraim. That's the best you can expect. You can't impart to your children what you don't possess. Think about it this way. If you sit in the second chair, the best you can do is raise third chair kids. If you sit in the third chair, the best you can do is raise third chair kids. If you sit in the second or third chair, and if your children become godly people of faith and sit in the second chair or the first chair, it's not from your influence. It's from the influence of godly people in the church and in their lives who sit in the first chair, and they're the ones God is using to influence your children for Christ. And when you sit in the first chair as a parent or a grandparent, even then, you have to fight for your kids like a warrior. Like a warrior. You have to contend for them. You have to protect them like a lioness or a lion. You have to nourish them. Parents, this is war. This is, is war. And one more thing, and then I'll give another example. One more thing, in this whole area of faith and influence concerning our kids and our midst, we are determined to be a first-chair church. We want to be a first-chair church because we want to undergird the parents. And, and this coming fall, we're going to do that in very specific ways because I've ordered a, a video series by Chuck Ingram called... Uh, let me get that. <laughs> Effective parenting in a defective world. And we're going to show that on, on eight Sunday evenings, show the video, and there's a workbook that goes to it. And we just, you know, we want this to influence our whole church and all of us who are working with kids or supporting the people who do work with kids and working with our parents as, as, as aunts, uncles, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, Awana leaders, those who babysit kids as grandparents. You know, we want to start giving you all the tools that we can in this whole area. And I'm even thinking about during this eight-week period, Sunday morning is going to be all about family and God and what we can do in this generation. And so it's going to be a great time as we want the kids, we want you guys, we want to give you the most important thing we can give you. And that's faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, you know, around our house in these days, you know, some of our family is getting pretty sick and tired of my brother Jerry and I and some of us in the family digging back into our ancestry. We love it. You know, where did the Pound family come from? Well, they came on the Mayflower, believe it or not. <laughs> where did the sleigh box come, you know? We thought for years that, you know, my grandpa... Lee Slaybaugh, he must have fallen off a truck someplace and ended up in Caldwell, Idaho. You know, how did, how, how, did, how did that go? You know, and in recent weeks, we've done some amazing research because we found out that uh, my ancestor, Christian Slaybaugh, came to, to the United States in 1805. He was first of all part of the Amish uh, community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and then moved to Holmes County, uh, Holmes County, uh, Illinois, and uh, we found a book that's about Amish houses and, uh, and barns, and it features three family Amish farms uh, that are in different parts of the country, 
and the middle one that it talks about is the farm and the barns built by the Schlebach family, our family, a first chair family. But here's the encouragement. My dad was raised in the third chair. We knew nothing of the heritage, the legacy. He came from a broken family. Nobody in his family, no cousins, no aunts and uncles were saved. It, it, was, a, it was a tough family. And so, you know, and my dad's father, Lee Slavaugh, he was, he was third chair. And I don't know, I haven't researched it historically, I don't know if Isaac Schlebach, who was my dad's grandfather, where, where he sat. But I go back just another generation, and I know there's first chair Schlebachs all over the place. But somewhere from leaving the Amish farm and coming to Caldwell, Idaho, all of a sudden the family is all, all third chair. Third chair. Until that day, in World War II, in a foxhole in Italy, my dad received the Lord. And in a very short time, he moved from third chair, he moved to second chair in salvation, and he moved to first chair. And we considered my dad to be the first Christian in our family because we didn't know any differently. And through his influence, over the years, especially when I was uh, pastoring in Payette and was near the family, I had aunts and uncles and cousins that were coming to the Lord through the influence of my dad and had the privilege of presiding at their funeral services because they knew the Lord. Knew the Lord. So where does it begin? It begins with each one of us here this morning on behalf of this generation to say, as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. Amen. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for the faith of those who have gone before us, we thank you for the moms and dads and grandparents, Sunday school teachers and men and women of the church who have built into to our lives. Father, I pray that as we continue to, to study your word concerning these things and as we move into the, from our summer and into the fall and that we make this the emphasis of our church, Father. I just pray that you would do a mighty work in our church and in our lives. And Father, we would be pleased that if you would bring more families and children into our church because what you are going to show us from your word, Father, is needed and necessary for everybody who lives in our community. And for this we pray in Jesus' name.